I post a lot on social media because no one in real life wants to listen to me, so I just post out there. So throw stuff out there and see what happens. And uh, so I tend to put stuff on Twitter. And uh, I, I've read, I finished reading through the Bible here a while back, and I've never been one of those guys that can read through the Bible in like a year. I just can't do it. I'm too ADD, and then before long I'm get behind, and then I'm just reading because I'm trying to catch up, not because I'm trying to learn. It just doesn't work for me. So uh, what I did was I started in Genesis, and I took a chapter at a time, and I just started reading through the Word. And it took me, I don't know how many years to finish getting all through it. But what I did was uh, every, every morning when I'd read a chapter, like I'd start in Genesis 1 or whatever, uh, I'd write well, 300 words or something on, on what I'd read. And so uh, one of the things I've done with that is I have about five of these. And what I'm doing is turning those into a, a weekly post called Two Minute Truths. You can find it at twominutetruths.com. And it takes you through the Bible chapter by chapter, starting in Genesis 1. I think right now the post is up to Exodus 32, 34, somewhere in there. Uh, so that's one thing I throw out there that you can check out and see if you like. Uh, but once I finished reading through the Bible, it was kind of like, okay, now what do I do? I don't want to just do that again. I've done that once. I don't want to do that again. And so uh, I had been given a Bible when I was ordained back when Moses was crossing the <laughs> sea. And, uh, and it was a Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is not that big a deal, but it's, it's just New Testament. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go through the Gospels and uh, read a chapter in the Gospels. But this time, instead of when I finish reading a chapter, instead of writing like 300 words or so on it, I'm just going to try to boil that chapter down into one, two, three, four, just basic principles, just kind of tweetable principles, if you will. And then what I do is I start sending those out as tweets. And sometimes I'll tweet one a day, sometimes two or three a day. And uh, so if you're on Twitter and you want to go to at Brett Leg, you'll find those. Uh, and so during the course of the day, you'll get several just kind of single principles. Uh, and I don't have it pulled up or I'd give you an example. I try to also put those on Facebook. So when I post to Twitter, I'll try to post it to Facebook too. So if you're on Facebook, you can usually find them there. Uh, so that's the second thing I do. Uh, there's, I have a blog called uh, normalmarriage.org. It's called Normal Marriage, but it's normalmarriage.org is where you can find it, uh, which is just a marriage blog. I try to post to there once a week. I've gotten a little bit behind over the holidays, but I try to post once a week. And uh, you can find stuff there. I encourage you, if you like it, subscribe, share it, get it out. I just, I came to the conclusion uh, here a while back that I cannot see as many people as I'd like to see and need to see. I just can't. And so I was trying to figure out how to get out some influence on marriage other than just the number of people I can get in my office. So that's when my assistant kind of twisted my arm and said, you need to start this blog. And so I started the blog and... Uh, so that's my attempt to get some marriage information out further than, than I can reach. So, see, those are three things that I'm doing. Pastor was talking to you about these kind of single sentence kind of things. Those are the ones you'll find on Twitter, you'll find on Facebook. And uh, I probably confused you enough and already talked way about, more about me than I need to be talking. Uh, 
Any questions on that? I just so I don't confuse anybody. Okay. I encourage you, if you read it, comment. If you think it stinks, tell me. All right? I read this, made no sense. I read this, this stinks. You don't know what you're talking about. Quit doing it. Whatever you need to write in there, comment and let me know. And uh, that's helpful to me. And the best thing you can do for me, since the purpose of the normal marriage blog is to stretch out some influence outside of just the people I could see, the best thing you can do for me is to share that with other couples and share that with people who will share that and, and get that out. Uh, that would do my heart very much good. That's poor English, isn't it? Very much good, it would do my heart. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's going to be tough teaching tonight, I can tell. Uh, but that would, that would thrill me if you could just share that with, with who, whomever and whoever needs it. All right? All right, that's enough about me and about the stuff I'm doing. Let's talk about what we need to talk about tonight. You know, back in January of 2015, we started this trek verse, uh, book by book through the Old Testament. 2015, three years ago, book by book through the Old Testament, and we've finally gotten to the book of Jonah. We finally got to the book of Jonah tonight. And so you can tell that we are just blazing through this book. This slide is, you know, I always give you a little cartoon slide at the beginning of a book because it'll just help you remember. This will help you remember about the book of Jonah. It's pretty straightforward. Everybody thinks about this kind of thing when you think about the book of Jonah. Uh, but because we've been going through the Old Testament at such a blazing speed... I thought we would do something different, fresh out of the gate of 2018. And so what we're going to do is we're going to slow it down a little bit <laughs> and, uh, and, and camp out in the book of Jonah for just a little bit. Just, just take some time in the book of Jonah. Uh, I thought it would do us good to do something different like that. When you think of the book of Jonah, what do you think about? The whale. The big fish. You think about this slide. That's what you think about the book of Jonah. Uh, but the book of Jonah is about so much more than just a big fish story. It really is. Matter of fact, the book of Jonah is, is really less about the fish and more about the bait. All right? The book of Jonah is more about the bait than it is the fish. Where other prophetic books are about the prophecy... This prophetic book is about the prophet, the fish bait. Jonah was fish bait. And, and in a sense, if we're not all careful, we'll all be fish bait. And so the book of Jonah is just very, very different. And so it warrants us taking some time out of, out of our, our blazing speed schedule to spend some time in the book of Jonah. Uh, I want to approach this differently, though, a little bit differently. Five years ago, in this room, I did a five-week series called Jonah's Journal. Some of you were a part of that. Some of you know that. You can find that online if you want. Uh, you can go to website, go to media, and go to Wednesday Night Messages. It was back five years ago, February 13 of 2013. You can also go to Wednesday Night and dial in the speaker name. You, there's ways to find it. But we did that five years ago. And uh, so what I want to do in the book of Jonah is I kind of want to take that series and re-unpack it for you. 
We called that series Jonah's Journal. We called that series Jonah's Journal. And, and there was a reason we called it Jonah's Journal. Uh, how many of you in here keep a journal? Yeah, you notice the people that keep a journal, it's almost like they're embarrassed about it. They don't want to go, I do. I, they just kind of do this. What do you keep in your journal? I mean, don't tell me an entry or anything, but, <laughs> but what kind of stuff do you keep in your journal? Huh, now they're all clamming up. Blessings. Hmm? Blessings. Blessings. Right now, that's a great journal. That's a great journal. You know, I started a journal. I'm not a big journaler. I'm really not. Uh, the first journal I ever started was when I wanted to kill my teenager. <laughs> I'm serious. You think I'm kidding, but I'm serious as I could be. I was so frustrated trying to raise teenagers that I thought it's either write or kill them. One of the two. And so I have journals that I will never, ever show them because I, they just don't need to read that kind of stuff. And, uh, but that's the first time I started writing journals. So that journal experience for me was one of venting and getting stuff off my chest and a whole lot of complaining and woe is me and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of keeping a blessing journal, I really like that. I like that. Yes. Deep, heart-wrenching prayer. So it's a prayer journal. I like that, too. That's a great idea. You realize that when you have to write out your prayers, it makes you think about them a whole lot more? I mean, it's not as easy to say, God bless everybody in Asia, you know? We pray really flippantly and easily, but when you have to read your prayers, sometimes if we have people, I haven't done this for a long time, but sometimes if I have someone that's going to come up and pray, sometimes I'll say, write it out. It's amazing. It's a great exercise to write out your prayers. Someone else in your journal. Yes. I'm sorry. Trials. Yes. Yes, trials. That's a good place to go when you have something like that going on, is to write them out. Yes. That's all hand. A Thanksgiving journal. She writes down the first thought she has in the morning when she gets up. Mine would be, I don't want to get up. That'd be mine right there. That's an interesting idea. I'm not sure I'd want to put that in print, but uh, that's a great idea. So Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving kind of journal. Anyone else? Yes. I write scripture in mine. Scripture. So it's a scripture journal. Yes. Kind of like what you did before pastor prayed. I mean, those kind of passages. This was, this was kind of my second attempt at journaling, and it, all it was was after I'd read a chapter of scripture, I just tried to write about what I saw, what it spoke to me, what it made me think about, what, you know, those kind of things. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to keep a journal. But here's one thing that's interesting about a journal. If you look at somebody's journal, and don't do that without permission, by the way, but if you look at somebody's journal, it'll tell you a lot about that person. It'll tell you a lot about this person. Let me show you some 
pictures of some journals. This is a picture from Albert Einstein's journal. Now, I know you can't read it, but I just kind of wanted to show it to you. Picture from Albert Einstein's journal. Here's one from Mark Twain. Yeah. Yeah, he was a man of few words, and he scratched a lot of them out, didn't he? This one is from Thomas Edison. I know a lot of you are thinking, I wish I could read those. This one's interesting. This is a single entry from Theodore Roosevelt's journal. It says, the light has gone out of my life. That's a big journal passage right there. That's a huge thing. Here's one from Marilyn Monroe's journal. Marilyn Monroe's journal. There's a section in here I found very just interesting and compelling. She said, I haven't, I haven't had faith in life. I haven't had faith in life. Reality, whatever it happens, whatever it is or happens, there is nothing to hold on to but reality. Now, that doesn't, may not seem like it makes a whole lot of sense to you. And if you were under the influences that she was under, you probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense when you were writing either. Uh, but it does give you a glimpse into kind of the hollowness and despair of life for her. So a, a journal will tell you a lot about a person's life. It gives you insights into their thoughts and feelings. So I got to thinking, back when we did the, the other Jonah series, what would it be like if biblical characters kept journals? I just think about stuff like that. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but I think about stuff like that. For instance, what if this was an entry from Adam's journal? Mental note, when God says don't eat the fruit, he means it. Or maybe Abraham. Yes, Isaac has been driving me crazy, but I was only joking when I said I wanted to kill him. You know? Or maybe Moses would have written this. Middle of the desert, burning bush, didn't burn up, freaked me out. You know? Or maybe David. Goliath fell with one stone, I fell with one woman. You know? It would it, be interesting to know what their journals would look like and sound like. But in a sense... Jonah is actually a journal. It's actually a journal. Some people keep travel journals, and here's what happened today, and here's where we went, and here's what we saw. And This is kind of a travel journal for Jonah. And if you read it like that, it, it's really, really interesting. So here's the track we're going to take through Jonah, and, and we're, we're going to crawl through Jonah for a little bit, so just settle in. We're going to look first at a fictitious journal entry by Jonah. You know, we don't have Jonah's journal, but let's just pretend. And we'll look at that kind of fictitious entry. And then the second thing we'll look at is the biblical text. And there's going to be some time in here we're just going to deal with a few verses. And then we're going to take that text and we're going to tear it apart. And then once we've done that, we're going to see what the takeaways are for us. And then we'll move on to the next one and do the same thing again. So, so that's kind of the game plan. So... Before we do that, we need to talk about the book of Jonah as a whole, though, because the book of Jonah is extremely interesting, but it's a little problematic. For instance, is the book of Jonah historical, or is it allegorical, or is it a parable? And you'll have people that will weigh in on all of those. You know, some people will say it's historical, it's absolutely historical. And then you run into the problems like it mentions the king of Nineveh, but there was no king of Nineveh. There was a king of Assyria. 
Nineveh didn't have a king as such because it was part of Assyria. Or you run into the problem like when it talks about the size of the city towards the end of the chapter or towards the end of the book. And, and, and it doesn't square with archaeological facts. And, and, and so that becomes problematic if you want to look at it historically. Uh, then you have the obvious problem, a fish that swallowed a man whole and took him on a submarine ride. You know, it's kind of hard for some people to swallow. Or a gourd, that vine that grew up in a single day and, and gave shelter and shade. So if you look at it historically, you have those kind of issues. If you look at it allegorically, an allegory, every part of the allegory fits what it's trying to portray. Well, that doesn't happen in the book of, the, of Jonah. Every part of the allegory doesn't fit the relationship between God and his people, and it, it doesn't always fit. And, and if you look at it as a parable, the problem with the parable is that Jesus treated the book as if it was historical and not a parable. So that creates problems there. So, so you have all these issues with the book of Jonah, which makes it all the more interesting as far as I'm concerned. And, and I'm just going to tell you the take I'm going to take on it. My stance here is this. I'm just going to take it at face value. I'm going to take it at face value. And uh, yes, there's a lot of miracles that happen. There's, uh, there's about, let's see, there is about 12 miracles that happen in four chapters. That's a lot to swallow. I'm just taking it at face value. Just telling you. And uh, I mean, you got to take something at face value. I choose to take this at face value. If you don't, that's uh, okay. There's still stuff for you to learn in the book of Jonah. But this is kind of how I'm going to take it. And uh, we'll talk about the things you can get out of it, no matter how you take the book of Jonah. So let's look at a possible journal entry from Jonah as we start this book. Jonah might have written something like this. I can't believe it. I can't believe he would warn them after all they've done. They don't deserve a warning. And why involve me? He knows how I feel about them. I don't want to have anything to do with them, let alone helping them. They made their bed. Let them lie in it. That's probably not too far off of how Jonah felt. It really isn't. So let's look at a couple verses. Let's look at the text. Starting in chapter 1, let's look at the first two verses. So I hope you brought your Bible. If you didn't, you're going to need to bring one. Something you can take notes in. Uh, if you don't write in your Bible, bring a Bible and a notepad, but bring something. Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So let's just stop right there. Let's tear this text apart just a little bit. Anybody know what the word Jonah, the name Jonah means? It means dove. The, word, the name Jonah means dove. And he's the son of Amittai, which means my true one. Some pretty high credentials, right? You're a dove. You're the bringer of peace. Remember the story from Noah? He releases a dove. It brings back an olive branch, symbol of peace. So your name means peace. You're a symbol of peace. And, and your father's name is my true one. So 
right off the bat, if you just stopped there and didn't know the book of Jonah, you would think this is really going to go some great places, right? Jonah's going to do some great things. And, and the writer is just setting this up, setting this up. Now, just some facts and figures. If you're not really a history buff, you can kind of glaze over for a few minutes. But Jonah was a prophet in Israel when Israel was doing really, really well. And, and he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, this was a golden age for Israel. They were prospering. They were at peace. They were actually accumulating more land. They were growing. They were amassing more and more land. So it was a great time for the nation of Israel. And Jonah was a prophet during that time. Uh, Now, he writes this book in third person. He doesn't say, you know, God told me to go to Nineveh. It says, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. And you may think that's weird, but Moses wrote in third person. Okay, and we don't argue with a whole lot of stuff Moses wrote. So it's not unusual to write in third person. So don't let that throw you. Uh, He was the only prophet to run from God. Now, we had prophets who complained. Can you think of some of those? Yeah, I know. It's, that was a whole year ago, wasn't it? Hmm? Moses. Moses complained. Absolutely. I love it. Moses said, I didn't give birth to these people. If you're going to saddle me with these people, just kill me now. I like that. Elijah. Elijah did the same thing after that big battle on Mount Carmel. You know, I'm the only one around that's serving you. No one else is serving you. It's just me. You know, just kill me. Notice no, none of them did it themselves. I always wanted God to do it for them. We'll get into that some more too. Uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah complained a lot. So, so you have these prophets that complained about what they were called to do, but you don't have anyone that ran from it except Jonah. Jonah is the one prophet that runs from God. Now, he's one out of four prophets that are mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus. Jonah's one of the four prophets Jesus mentions. Can you think of the other three prophets? Some of you are saying, I didn't know there was going to be a test. Elijah, Elisha, and Isaiah. Those are pretty heavy hitters. I mean, those are big-time prophets. And find it interesting that in the midst of those three big heavy hitters, there's Jonah. And when, when Jesus speaks of Jonah, he speaks of Jonah if it's historical. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Uh, or just stay there and I'll read it to you. One of the two. Matthew chapter 12. If you look at verse 41, here's what Jesus says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is treating Jonah and the Ninevites as if that really happened, as if it's historical. Look at uh, Luke 11. My thumbs are not working. Luke 11. Look at verse 32 in Luke 11. 
if I can get there and get my pages separated. Okay, Jesus says this, the men of Nineveh, same thing, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Again, he says, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, so Jesus refers to Jonah as if he's a historical figure. And he refers to him just like he refers to Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. Okay. Jonah was a contemporary. I mean, he wasn't out there by himself. He was contemporary with Hosea. He was a contemporary with Amos. And, and the interesting thing is they warned Israel of the coming judgment from the Assyrians. Jonah warns the Assyrians of God's coming judgment. So it's just backwards. I mean, I can see why Jonah would have trouble with this. It's just completely backwards from all the other prophets and how they did it. You know, wait a minute, God. I thought I was supposed to prophesy to Israel about Assyria. You want me to go to prophesy to Assyria about you? Really? So it was really difficult for him. Uh, All the other prophets had these really long prophecies. I mean, even some of the what we call minor prophets are fairly long. Jonah is just four chapters, and it's not really about his prophecy. There's only a verse or two about his prophecy. The rest of it's about him as a prophet. So I, I just find that fascinating. Uh, let's talk about Nineveh for just a little bit. That's Jonah. That's what you know about Jonah. Here's what we know about Nineveh. You know, because going back to the text, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, now Nineveh was about 550 miles from Jerusalem, or, or from Samaria, excuse me, from Israel's capital. About 550 miles. It was built, anybody know who built Nineveh? Go to, go to Genesis chapter 10 for a minute. Some of you are going, I don't care. Just get on with the book of Genesis. Or Noah, Jonah, whoever we're studying. Genesis chapter 10. And look at verse 9. Go back to verse 8. Cush. Now, Cush was a son of Noah. Okay, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and, no, excuse me, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Cush was a grandson, if I've got that right. But he's a descendant of Noah. And it says this, Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. In other words, he was used as a standard. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or Babel. Eric and Akkad and Kalnin, Kalnin, excuse me, in the land of Shinar, which is kind of in the Babylonian area, in, in that area there. Okay. Then it says, and resin between Nineveh and, uh, excuse me, verse 11. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So Nimrod built Nineveh, a descendant of Noah, builds Nineveh, all right? So that's who built it. 
Now, Nineveh was this great city. It was, it was surrounded by an outer wall and an inner wall. Walls that were about 100 feet high and about 50 feet wide. Those are some big walls, right? So it, it, it was a great city. As a matter of fact, that's how it's referred to. Verse 2 again, go to Nineveh, that great city. And if you look at chapter 3 of Jonah, chapter 3, the latter part of verse 3, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And if you go to chapter 4, verse 11, I should, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. Okay. So the Bible is trying to get across the point that Nineveh is a great city. It's great in, in a lot of ways. It's great in its population. It's great in its size. Even if it's not as big as this text proclaims, it's still for its size. It was great. Uh, it, it was a city that was second only to Babylon. So if you want to put it in perspective, the largest city in Georgia is... Oh, yes, great. Don't, don't fail me on that one. Atlanta. The second biggest city is Augusta. This is how it was in Assyria. There was Babylon and there was Nineveh. It's kind of the same comparison, if you will. So compared to everything else, it was a great city. It was great in resources. It was great in power, but it was also great in sin. Great in sin. Look at verse 2 again says, go to that Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That phrase, come up, it means full to the brim. Nineveh is full to the brim with evil. It's just amazing. Full to the brim with evil. Let me read you a, an excerpt from Layman's commentary about Nineveh. That will help you understand it a little bit more. It says, uh, one of the kings of Assyria told how he treated towns which fell to him in the Lebanon reason. Here's what the king of Assyria, which is, encompasses Nineveh too, here's what they said. I destroyed them. I tore down the walls. I burned the towns with fire. I caught the survivors and impaled them on stakes in front of their town. I slew their warriors with swords. In the moat of the town, I piled them up and covered the wide place with corpse of their fighting men. I dyed the mountains of their, with their blood like red wool. And then he goes on to say this. I tore out the tongues of those whose slanderous mouth had uttered blasphemies against the god Asher. I smashed them alive. I fared their corpses and cut them into small pieces to dogs and pigs and vultures. Happy conversation right after you've eaten lunch and eaten dinner. But this was Nineveh. They were ruthless. They were wicked. They, they showed no mercy whatsoever. And, and you can understand now why why this is not something that Jonah's really happy about. He's not really happy about this. Uh, they're just that wicked. But here's something that happens. 
before Jonah arrives, Nineveh had kind of gotten shaken up. Nineveh was a little anxious and anxiety-ridden. And here's why. Before Jonah shows up, they were happened to work harder at controlling their inner stability than their outer expansion. In other words, inner turmoil demanded all of their focus. And so they couldn't grow and they couldn't establish themselves because they were just trying to hold themselves together. They had experienced two plagues before Jonah shows up. And before Jonah shows up, they had seen at least one total eclipse. And if you're a very superstitious people who tend to believe in gods of the suns and sun gods and moon gods, and that'll rattle you. And, and so God knew exactly what he was doing in his timing to send Jonah there. Jonah just didn't get it. He didn't get it at all. And why do you think Jonah would resist going? So Jonah knew that God was a dirty, rotten forgiver, and he didn't want him forgiven. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, on top of the fact that they were just, I mean, if you had to go to a people who, if you disagreed with them, they impaled you on a stake and pulled out your tongue and cut you up into dog food, would you be really anxious to go? I mean, that too. I mean, Jonah had both of those things going on. And so, I mean, you can kind of empathize with Jonah a little bit, but it doesn't get us past it. So, I'm way ahead of my slides here. I've told you all of those things, and I've told you all of these things. So, let's do some takeaways from these two verses, and then we'll move on. We'll take another chunk of Jonah. It's kind of an interesting thing to say about Jonah. We'll take another chunk out of Jonah. Takeaway, number one, God longs to reach everyone even when we don't. Now, we would never say this out loud, but sometimes there are people in our lives or on our TV screens that we would be just as happy if they were not one of the chosen. I'll just say that for you. You don't have to say that. But we all know those people. We all have those feelings at times. But Jonah, and Jonah had them. He didn't, like you said, he didn't want the Ninevites forgiven. He'd rather see them burn. He'd rather see God destroy them. And, and so, and then the thought that God would even reach out and give people like this a chance, it just doesn't seem fair. It seems like a God who is not playing by the rules, if you will. But what Jonah needed to understand is this. God longs to reach everyone, even those we don't want to reach or are not excited about reaching. He is just as passionate about them as he is about us. Another takeaway. When God calls, it's a command, not a consideration. When God calls, it's a command. How many of you have told your kids, hey, go pick up your clothes? Okay. And it never happens. 
And you tell them again, yeah, I know, I'm going to get them. Oh, and it never happens. And sometimes you go to bed, and they go to bed, and it still hasn't happened. And sometimes you go wake them up out of the bed and said, pick up your clothes, you know. It's like it's a consideration, not a command. This is what God is trying to get across to Jonah. Jonah is treating what God says as if it's a consideration, but it's a command. And this takeaway, God disturbs in order to disperse. God disturbs in order to disperse. God will, will change up your world in order to get you out of your world to someone else and somewhere else. Can you think of some biblical examples of that? There's a ton of them. The church. The church. Yeah, they got really comfortable and they stayed in, and, and, and Jesus told them before the resurrection that they're to go out into the ends of the earth and they get really comfortable and they stay camped out in Jerusalem and so there's this huge persecution that comes from the Roman government and they have to scatter. God will disturb to disperse. I have a friend who says God unfeathers our nest. Unfeathers our nest. That's a cool way to think of it. God unfeathers our nest. Hmm? Can you think of any other examples of that happening? There are some. Who? Saul. Yeah, absolutely. Saul was knocked off his horse, so to speak. Couldn't speak. Saw this blinding light. Couldn't see. It rattled him. But it wasn't to be punitive. It was to get his attention to disperse him. Exactly. Can you think of any others? Joseph? Somebody else? Peter? Yeah. I mean, that's what God does. Abraham. God calls to Abraham, get up, pack up, leave everything behind. Why? Because Abraham was to be the father of many nations. He was, to dis- he was disturbed so that he could be dispersed. Abraham was one of those. Uh, the church you've mentioned, the Tower of Babel. Classic example. They decide they're going to camp out together rather than fill the whole earth like they were commanded. God disturbs them by changing up all their language. And they have to separate and disperse. It's God's call on our lives. Uh, so God will do that. And that's what God was doing with Jonah. And... Uh, and he did disperse Jonah after a few side trips. So, all right, let's take another chunk of this passage and then we'll quit for the evening. Let me give you another fictitious journal entry. Jonah says, I couldn't do it. He knows how I feel about this and he knows how I feel about them. But he kept pressing. And everything I saw and heard kept pushing me to do it. So I decided I had to get away from it and from him. I found a ship that would take me away for a while. It cost me, but a change of scenery might be the perfect distraction. Surely he can use someone else. Let's look at the text. Verse 3. Just verse 3. Let's read it. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare 
I mean, he had to pay to run away from God. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So that's the text. Let's take that one verse apart just a little bit. Now, the important thing to, uh, to look at here is in the, in the start of verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Okay, what you have to understand was he not only was avoiding God, he went in the absolute opposite direction. Look at this map. Absolute opposite direction. He went completely opposite. One is where he was at when God calls him. See down there at two, at the very bottom of that arrow is Joppa, where he went to get on board a ship. If you look at number four, that's where God wanted him to go. You can't get much more 180 degrees than that. It's like Jonah said, not only no, but heck no, I'm not going. And so, yes. <laughs> That's a good question. And you and I can look at the book of Jonah and go, how in the world can Jonah be so stupid to think he could run from God? But you know what? You and I, we do this on our, in our own ways all the time. All the time. Uh, maybe not as... as dramatic as Jonah did, and it doesn't get written down in a book, thank goodness, but we do that. It's, it's kind of our nature too, especially if God's calling you to do something you don't want to do. You will find all kinds of ways to get out of that. So he goes in the opposite direction. And notice that it doesn't say he's, he's running away. It says he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. From the pres- he's trying to get away from God is what he's trying to do. Now, you and I, we think that's silly. But a lot of people in that day and age thought that their gods were territorial. They were geographic. And that if you, went, if you left this geography, then that god stayed in that geography and you ended up picking up another god in this geography. So Jonah should have known better. I'm not making excuses for Jonah, but... It wouldn't be too far out of the understanding when somebody read this that he was fleeing from the presence of of the Lord. The, The term, the presence of the Lord, means the face, the head, the front of God. You know, it's it's one thing to be near somebody that you don't like when they're not paying attention to you. But when they're looking at you, when you're face to face with them, when you're facing, when they're facing front with you, this is what was disturbing Jonah. God wouldn't move. He wouldn't change his mind. He wouldn't do anything different. He just stayed there. I mean, remember being young and trying to get away with something from your parents and they just stood there and looked at you? And they didn't say anything? And the more you talked, the deeper hole you dug, and all you wanted to do was just get away. And that's what's happening with Jonah and God. He's trying to get away from the front of God, the head of God, the face of God. And it's repeated again at the end of the verse. So twice. And when Scripture repeats something, it's because they want you to get it. They don't want you to miss it. So it says he's going down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it and to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. I mean, he's doing everything he can to bury himself and not be found. And 
And so they go to Joppa. Joppa's about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. You can see it on the map there. Uh, it's in the territory of Dan. It, it, it often slipped between the hands of Israel and the hands of the Phoenicians and the hands of the Philistines. Now, it's interesting that the Phoenicians, uh, Israel built alliance with this part of the country with, when, the, when the, Felicia, uh, the Phoenicians had it. And they did that by King Ahab marrying the daughter of the king there, who was Jezebel. Exactly. Ahab marries Jezebel, and that's part of an alliance to kind of hang on to that territory. That's the same area that we're talking about. And, and this is the place when, when Solomon built his temple, Joppa is the place where they brought in all the lumber to do that. And so Jonah goes down from Israel, down to Joppa, down into a ship. Ship would have looked something like this. You know, it's not a big ocean liner, okay? It really isn't. It's a relatively small ship, you can see by the representation there. Uh, so it's not like this is a huge ship, and the Phoenician ships were long and slender. Uh, they carried the cargo, one for trading, but one for ballast. And so this would have been something like what Jonah would have been seeking out. And he had to pay to go on board this ship. So, it's not, I mean, like he's serious about running from God. He's putting down his own money to do this. Uh, so let's, let's talk about some takeaways from this. There are many ways to run from God's presence. None of them work. <laughs> they just don't. Been there, done that. They just don't work. You can try excuses, you can try geography, you can try to hide. If you think you're coming into big old Warren Baptist Church with some 2,000 people here in worship on Sunday and you can hide in the crowd, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. God sees you. You can't hide from his presence. Uh, look at Psalm 139. Hold your place there and go over to Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite favorite passages of scripture. Psalm 139, look at verse 5. Here's what he says about God. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand on me. That's a picture of God boxing us in. He has us behind, he's in front of us, and he puts his hand over the top of us. There's nowhere for us to go. He has us boxed in goes on to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't, it's high. I cannot contain it. And then verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I made my bed in Sheol, hell, if you will, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, meaning go if I go east, and dwell at the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. I, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me. And the light about me be as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere to hide. You just can't. You can try, but it's not going to work. 
Another takeaway. When you ignore God, you end up going down. This is, it, it, this is very symbolic when it tells the story of, of Jonah. He goes down to Joppa. And it says he goes down into the ship. And then he goes down into the inner parts of the ship. And if that's not down enough, eventually he goes down into a fish. And then if that's not down enough, the fish takes him down to the bottom of the sea. I mean, it's just this trajectory. When you ignore God, this is your trajectory. It may be slow, it may be fast, but that's the trajectory you're going to, you're going to be a part of. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's God's will. And just because it's easy doesn't mean it's God's will. Let that sink in for a minute. Some people think that the only way this can be God's will if it's really hard, if I have to give up everything I like and suffer. And I, I just knew when I surrendered to the ministry, I knew I was going to be in some small little church in the middle of nowhere where they paid you with chickens. I was just convinced that that's what was going to happen. Because I just thought if you have to serve God, it's got to be hard. But some people also think that if this is hard, then it's not God's will. It's both, if it's God's will, it should be easy. That's not true either. God was asking Jonah to do something very hard. Something that it wasn't going to be easy. For. Now, it would have been easier if Jonah had obeyed, but it wasn't going to be easy. And, and we have got to get it out of our head that easy equals God's will, hard equals not God's will, or vice versa. God gets to do what he wants. I don't like that because I'd rather be God and do what I want. But God gets to do what he wants. And so that's a takeaway. Let's see. Do we have time to buzz through one more? Let me see. I found it. This is maybe a little off topic. But any of you familiar with J. Vernon McGee? Yeah. Radio teacher. Passed away years ago. Here's what J. Vernon McGee said about Jonah and the Ninevites. Jonah hated the Ninevites and he did not want them saved. There is a basis for his hatred. Assyria was one of the most brutal, brutal nations in the ancient world. They were feared and dreaded by all the people of that day. They used very cruel methods of torture and could extract information from their captives very easily. One of the procedures... Um, was to take a man out into the sands of the desert, bury him up to his neck. Nothing but his head would stick out. Then they would put a thong through his tongue and leave it there for him to die as hot, penetrating sun would beat down on his head. And it said that a man would go mad before he died. When they moved down like a plague of locusts upon a town or a village, it is said that they were so feared and dreaded that on some occasions entire towns would commit suicide rather than to fall into their hands. And God said, Jonah, that's the people I want you to go to. It was hard. It was difficult for Jonah. Not only that, if you go back to the map, that was a long old trek. So hard and easy doesn't define what's God's will. God defines what's God's will. All right? Let's see. I don't know. 
Let's see if we got the time to get. Okay, we'll rush through one more. We'll rush through one more. Here's a third fictitious journal entry from Jonah. Things were going well. I started to forget about things until today. We were experiencing a very bad storm, and the crew looked scared. They're scrambling to, to secure the ship. I'm sure they know what they're doing, but to hear them pray is unnerving. So maybe I can just sleep through it. Let's look at the text, verses 4 and 5. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and they cried out to his, each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Okay, let's take this text apart really quickly and then we'll do some takeaways. Notice that it says in verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind. This is intentional. The writer wants you to see that it was intentional. It was not coincidence. It wasn't just they happened to be out there and they ran into the storm. The Lord sent this storm. And, and it says that it threatened. Go back to this text again. Hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. That word threatened is kashab. Kashab in Hebrew. It means to fabricate or to plot or to cultivate. And so the purpose of this great wind was to threaten the ship. I mean, God did this. God sends the storm, sends the wind, and he sends it for the purpose of threatening the ship. It's fabricated. It's part of the plot, if you will. And it says that Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid. Now, these were crusty old sailors. They had seen storms before. They had made their living this way. Their parents had probably made their livings this way. They knew exactly how to navigate a storm. But they were scared to death. What does that tell you? Hmm? Bad storm. They ain't never seen nothing like that before. You know, it, it's over and above. It's over the top kind of storm. Uh, and then it says that they were frightened, they were afraid. And it says that each of them cried out to his God. It, it, it's kind of, again, it was a polytheistic society. They each had their own gods, their own favorite gods. And they cried out to their own favorite gods, their own personal gods, if you will. And not only did they pray, but they hurled cargo from the ship. So, you know, you heard that old saying, pray like it all depends upon God, work like it all depends upon you. This is exactly what they were doing. And so they were praying to their gods, but they were hurling cargo from the ship. The reason they were doing that was to lighten the ship, lift the ship, to, to lessen the danger of the ship crashing on the rocks. Because once the ship gets a hole in it, it's going down. I mean, 
happened with the Titanic. It happened with this little wooden ship. So they're lightening the load by throwing all the cargo overboard. Interesting, it says they hurled the cargo. It's the same word that God used, that's used for God when it says he hurled the storm. He, he hurled the storm. They hurled the cargo. But interesting, interesting word in this passage. Uh, then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. This next word says a lot. But. But Jonah. But Jonah. You know, basically it's comparing Jonah to these pagan sailors. And, and it says, okay, the pagan sailors knew that God was doing something. They were crying out to whatever God they could think of. They were working to, to hurl the cargo over. They were doing everything they could. But Jonah's snoozing in on deck. It, it, it's, it's trying to give you an example of how far gone Jonah was. I mean, Jonah was, was just hardening, and he was that far gone. Okay, so let's do some takeaways, and we'll go home. Takeaway number one, God will do whatever he has to to get our attention. We don't like the thought of that, but God will do whatever he has to. Notice, I said he'll do whatever he has to to get your attention. He'll do whatever he has to not to destroy you, not to mess up your life, not to make your life harder, just to get your attention. That's what he wants. And that's certainly what God did with Jonah. Another takeaway. And if you are furiously writing these down, if you don't get something down, it will be up on the Wednesday night messages. We'll post these slides with the Wednesday night messages. So, I, I mean, some of you, I, I know how obsessive compulsive you are. You've got to get every word down. <laughs> Just relax. You can get it, okay? Because um, I was that way in school. About killed me. All right, another takeaway. God deliberately pursues us even when we move away. Even when we move away. Now, you probably know some people in your life that if they move away, you go, hey, if that's the way you want it, good riddance. See you later. God does never do that. We move away from God. He pursues us. You see that in the New Testament, too. You see it in the Old Testament. Remember the book of Hosea? Gomer moves away. Maybe it's because she was named Gomer. I don't know. But Gomer moves away, and he pursues her. In the New Testament, the shepherd who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, it goes astray, and the shepherd moves towards that sheep. God will deliberately pursue us even when we move away. Here's one that we need to be very mindful of. Our sin and our rebellion affects others. Your sin is not just yours alone. It doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just affect, my sin doesn't just affect me. It affects me and everyone around me. Now, you may say, well, that's kind of heavy to put that responsibility for the people around me on, on me. And you're right. But remember the passage in Genesis where one brother says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And the applied answer is, yes. yes, we are. So our sin affects the people around us, not just ourselves. Jonah's sin, 
had these sailors thinking they were going to die. They hurled their cargo, and, and that was their living. They were going to have to pay for that cargo. And they threw it over. See, it cost them financially. It almost cost them their lives. But it was nothing that they did. It was Jonah's sin. You know? Those of you that are parents, you get that. You can see that. I used to pray every day. I still pray every day. God, please save them from the stuff I hand them. Because I know not everything they get from me is something that they need. Our sin affects other people. When your heart is hard, you can tune almost anything out. Jonah could sleep through a life-threatening storm with sailors yelling, screaming, and pulling cargo out from around him. Because when your heart is hard, you can ignore almost anything. The key is to not let your heart get that hard. That's why God has to, when, when we ignore him, when we refuse him, that's why God has to keep upping the ante because it takes more and more to get through to a hardening heart. You don't want to be in that position. Trust me, you don't want to be in that position. All right, we made it all the way through verse 5. <laughs> Breakneck pace. And I have no idea how far we'll get next week, but we'll just wait and see how far we get next week, okay? Glad you all are here. Any comments or questions before we go? I know it's time to go, so I don't want to hold you long. All right, let's pray and go then. Father, I'm grateful for this book. I love this book, but it, this book makes me uncomfortable because I see myself in this book way more than I want to. And uh, that means you're trying to teach me and tell me something from this book too. So, Father, I pray that as we leave this evening, we won't just leave with uh, some interesting stuff from the book of Jonah. I pray that we'll leave with some things that challenge us, haunt us, change us. Father, the purpose of studying the Bible is not to just gain truth. That's really just a means to an end. The reason we want to gain truth from your word is so we can be transformed. So, Father, I pray that we won't leave here with just truth. But that truth will transform us. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.